So Psalm 119 and verse 33. This is the fifth portion of Psalm 119. Let us give our attention to God's word. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Amen. May God bless his word to us this afternoon. Well, as we open this portion of Psalm 119, I think it would be good for us to think on this bare truism. In fact, many think, especially today, that our salvation in Christ is a mere receiving. And it is that, absolutely so. But rarely do we consider that our salvation in Christ is also a returning, a returning of ourselves, a giving of ourselves unto the Lord as a living sacrifice, as the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that having received the grace of God, we return our lives to Him. You know, oftentimes this is the caricature of Christianity, isn't it? That you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps at an evangelistic event. You get your um, so-called ticket to heaven punched, and then you can walk away from the Lord. But no, our lives are meant to be returned back unto the Lord. Freely we have received, yes, every blessing. But what is the response of the Christian to such a faithful Savior? It is to consecrate their lives totally to God, both in body and soul. And that is what you and I are called to as believers. A total, and here's the word, that is scarce. I was just thinking about this. How scarcely you hear this word in Christian circles anymore. Devotion. A total devotion to the Lord. A total desire to give ourselves to Him. It seems like in days past, we would talk about devoting ourselves to God. That my Christianity was not a mere receiving of Christ, but also a returning of myself unto him. You remember it was said of the earliest disciples, but first gave their own selves to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8.5 What does that mean? They give themselves unto God. You know, the Christian saved by Christ is consecrated totally body and soul to him. The whole man devoted to adoring and serving Jesus Christ. We sing... In verse 38 here, that we are servants devoted to God's fear. We are, can we sing this with, without hypocrisy? Saying, I am devoted to the fear of God. I am devoted to God. Now the fear of God, children, in the Hebrew mind is one might, how one in the Old Testament would have spoke of faith in God, essentially. Faith in God. Am I devoted by faith to God with a holy reverence for God, seeing Him as my Creator, as my Redeemer? 
that I am the servant. He is the master. He is the Lord. And what a sweet Lord he is who has redeemed me. And that my life is given to him. He is worthy, isn't he? Now, you might notice in your copy of the scriptures here, this translation, uh, uh, that the translators might have put the word devoted in verse 38 in italics. It's supplied to give a sense. But it is the sense of the verse there, of this devotion. A total consecration to God of the whole man, of our will and our ways is what you find in this portion of Psalm 119. And this consecration is manifest by following the word of God, especially the law of God. Yet as you sing, because law has become somewhat of a dirty word in the Christian church these days, yet as we sing it, I hope you never miss this. This psalm is bathed in the language of grace. You know, the sole way for you to be devoted and consecrated to the word of God, the law of God, and ultimately Christ himself, of course, is by the grace of God. You see here, there are prayers, several petitions, aren't there, in this psalm. To, you know, one, one example here is he prays and asks the Lord for an undivided heart. You know, the psalm is a barrage of prayers, one after another, offered to God, to ask God to infuse his soul with the word so he may live it out. And I hope you notice such things when you come to Psalm 119. There's prayer after prayer after prayer. When you see that, children, especially when you pick up on this in your Bible, where there are prayers uh, asked of God that we would commit duties, that is, and use this word, that is the language of grace. That is the language of grace. That is an asking of God for the power and the ability to do what God has asked us to do. You know, so many come to the Old Testament and, and miss that it is a, a testament that is through and through of grace. Say, when you see these petitions, I am asking for power from on high to devote myself to God. And I would hope, you know, even if we talked about devotion being a thing neglected in the Christian church today, is there any desire in you to devote yourself to God. That's where we have to begin. Is there a desire at all in you to say, I want my heart undivided for the Lord. I want my mind filled with the word of God so I may think God's thoughts after him. I want my eyes to be shielded from the filth of this world because I want it only to be set upon Christ and his beauty. And I want my feet to travel only on those paths that lead to righteousness. Is there even a sense of this desire and longing, even a small, feeble one? The Christian is meant to have it. And the Christian, by God's grace, can and will have it if he would but ask. Now, of course, we can't go too far without realizing Jesus Christ, of course, is the man of this psalm, so utterly devoted, heart, mind, Every bit of him, undivided for God. He even said his food, his meat, was to do the will of God. Totally consecrated. He even prayed, what? Not my will, but thine be done. This is the man who is totally consecrated to the Lord. And yes, we sing the psalm ultimately united to him, don't we, brethren, if we are in, uh, in the faith. And we're thankful for that because he is the one who has done these things and is these things. 
But as he is the vine and we are the branches, we can be such a man as this or a woman as this by his grace because he who is this can give us divine grace through our union with him if we would just ask the Lord Jesus. We can be devoted to God as Christ is and he will give it. So let me put all that together. I know I've gone a bit long in my introduction today, but our theme is simply this, a consecrated life to Christ by the word of God in the grace of God. So a consecrated life to Christ by the word of God in the grace of God, which is essentially what we have here. And we're going to divide our theme into the four heads on your bulletin, which are going to look at some of the constituent parts of man first, uh, and the devotion that we are to have in every part. First is the mind, second is the heart, third is the eyes, and fourth is the feet, or are the feet. Now these heads, I'll just give you a heads up, um, are not ordered according to the arrangement of the psalm. So we're going to go um, not in verse by verse manner, but they're arranged according to a progression that I think is helpful for us, that is very biblical. In where our devotion begins, in the mind, it makes its way to the heart, It shields the eyes, and it sets the eyes upon things that are beautiful and lovely. And then our feet are set on a course that we ought to go. And the psalmist has in this psalm every portion of his body and soul arranged uh, to be devoted to the Lord. So with that in view, let's first consider uh, the mind. Now the mind is very important, and today it's a very neglected faculty of the Christian soul. You know, Christianity today is often de- defined by emotions and feelings rather than biblical solid truth. I think that's just plain. Even the kinds of churches that are erected often are erected after a kind of fanaticism that is not built around the Word of God. That's a symptom uh, in many ways of our postmodern age. We could have a discussion on that another time. But we are called in the scriptures to have in our minds what is biblical, what is the truth of the word of God, filling our minds, illuminating our minds, renewing our minds. And we are to reason according to the word of God and what can be deduced out of it. Now, the mind, as the scriptures show us, is a very important battleground in the Christian's journey to the promised land. The mind must be taken captive for Christ because you think about this. Um, I know some of our children are blessed, well, most of our children are blessed to have grown up in Christian homes, but generally speaking, right, and even in Christian homes, this, this happens. From our earliest age, our minds are filled with worldliness, Our minds are filled with unbiblical um, so-called truths. They're not truths. I can't call them truths. They're unbiblical uh, things. Unbiblical matter fills our minds completely. And we lap it up. But when we are regenerated, our mind is to be consecrated and devoted to the service of the Lord Jesus. You know, brethren, think about why the unregenerate mind loves a lie, and why it is filled with a lie. Because the unregenerate mind finds the truth antithetical to what it loves, which is sin. It doesn't want to admit the truth of God. Right? That's why the fool says there is no God. 
doesn't want to admit what is plain. They will believe the lie rather than the truth, is what the scripture says. Romans 1.18 says, we hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But when you are regenerated, brethren, the, when you come to faith, the mind has first place in the renewal of the Christian. That is what the scripture teaches that the mind has the first place of renewal. Think of repentance, right? Think of repentance. The Greek word, you might know it, is metanoia. What does that mean? A change of mind, doesn't it? And what happens in repentance when our mind changes? Well, the mind, it admits for the first time, sin is wicked, it is abhorrent, it is evil, it is awful, it is against God. Right, The mind is now filled with truth, and it sees what sin is. Then the mind also starts to see other things. It starts to see that the just penalty for sin is eternal damnation. It sees that is true. I deserve hell because my sin is against an infinitely holy God. And the mind is also blessedly filled with this new truth, this truth rather, that is new to it that Christ has come into the world to save sinners. And so the mind changes. All these things, and some of you have testified of this, I can testify of this. Some of these things, right, brethren, when we were unconverted, our minds scoffed at these things. We laughed at these things. But then when the mind is renewed, we can see no other truth but these things. So the mind is the first place of battle. And the mind then um, has to, well, where does this truth, let me back up a bit. Where does this truth come from that our mind is filled with? It is the word of God. Everything I've mentioned that we admit when we are converted comes out of the word of God. And so our mind is renewed through the word of God. When the Holy Spirit illuminates it to our minds, taking away our blindness, shining the light of Christ, renewing our minds, Christianity Mark this well, never forget it, is a religion of the mind. It absolutely is. There isn't this kind of blind mysticism in Christianity. It is a mystical religion in a sense because we have a mystical union, a spiritual union with Christ. But all of the truth of Christianity is meant to press into the mind. It is a thinking religion. It is a meditating religion, a religion that meditates on the word of God. You must exercise your mind in the service of God, brethren. When those, you know, who will sort of quote the Bible out of order and say things like, much learning has made you mad, right? those people don't actually understand that Christianity and the doctrines that come out of the word of God are meant for the mind. The scripture says our minds are to be renewed and refreshed by God. Romans 12.2, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4.23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So your mind is to be consecrated for God. And every thought, every thought that your mind has, which is against the word of God, is to be rooted out. Every thought, we say it often, is to be taken captive for Christ. Every thought. And your mind is to be renewed with God's will found in the word of God. Let me cite Romans 12.2 in its entirety. And be not conformed to this world, 
but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect what? Will of God. Do you see how the mind has first place in the apostles' uh, doctrine? So the Christian desires to devote their minds to God by knowing God's word and all the doctrines that flow out of it. Because, boys and girls, what's the third question in your shorter catechism? What do the scriptures principally teach? I, I suppose you should know that by now, right? What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Right? You know that. Right? Uh, and that is where it's come into your mind, hasn't it? In, as you've studied the catechism and so on, these truths come into your mind. And that is why we catechize you. That is why we have you do scripture memory. Because our minds must be filled with the truth of God. What are you filling your minds with, brethren? First place, God and his truth. What is it that you learn? Most of all, it must be of God. Now, with that foundation, I needed to set it in place before we came into the psalm proper. Now, in this psalm, we express a desire to have our mind renewed by the Lord. So verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. You know, feed my mind. Teach me, O Lord. Be a shepherd unto me. Teach me the meaning of the word. Teach me the heart of the word. Teach me the glory of the word. That is the posture of the Christian disciple. Sitting at the feet of the Lord, right? As, as Mary, we recognized not long ago in Luke's gospel, was sitting at Christ's feet. Now, what is important is to understand the heart of the psalmist here. He doesn't say, God, I will take up the word of God and learn. What does he actually say? Teach me. He goes to the Lord to be his teacher. Do you notice that there's a profound difference in that, isn't there? Of coming to the word of God as though you are the master of the word, as though you are going to deduce and figure out everything, rather than coming to the word of God, opening it humbly and saying, teach me, O Lord. In fact, what you must know is that the outward revelation of the word is utterly useless to you unless God, by his spirit, brings the outward revelation of the word inwardly into your heart and mind. That changes completely how you approach the word of God. It changes completely how a minister preaches the word of God. It changes how you receive preaching. It changes everything about your interaction with the word of God because many hear the word of God, but few are taught by the spirit of God. And that's who we need to teach us. When we say teach us, O Lord, we're saying essentially may the Holy Spirit whose role is to teach us and illuminate us would be the one to be our instructor. You know, when it comes to the Bible, even the most experienced minister comes with a sense of dependence and humility. Teach me, O Lord. I need the Holy Spirit. Children, think about the kinds of teachers you might have had. You know, the difference in learning subject matter often comes by way of the kind of teacher you have. Right? Sometimes, I've done this, um, I've gone to a teacher and I've come under a subject, and the only thing that the teacher has taught me is to hate the subject. Right? And so you can have teachers like that, but then you come to another teacher and suddenly it's exciting, it's remarkable, it makes sense, 
And you're like, this is the most exciting thing in the world. What made the difference? The teacher and the approach. So who do you need to teach you the word of God? The very best teacher of all. The Lord who inspired the word. He must be your teacher. That's who the psalmist wants. To teach him the Lord, the master. You know, the lessons that God teaches. Because he teaches them are powerful and profound, and they are never forgotten. When he impresses his truth upon your heart. Elihu asked, who teacheth like him? In Job 36.22. Who teacheth like him? Who can possibly teach us like God himself? That's why the psalmist says, if God will teach me, I will keep it to the end. Do you see how that's linked? When he has God as his teacher, he says, I will keep the lesson. I will keep the word to the end. You know, I suspect that some of you have experienced this, where God has taught you a lesson and you have never forgotten it. You will say, there are some things I have opened the word of God and I know it was the good shepherd's voice that I was hearing, the voice of my beloved, and I will never, ever forget what I have learned. And that's what we want when we come to the word of God. And that's what we must plead for when we come to the word of God. Teach me, O Lord. You know, you come often, there's certain clarity in the word, there's power, the cobwebs of your mind are blasted, unbiblical conceptions, you see now what they were for truth, And they're erased from you. You know the way you ought to go. It's illuminated to you. And you are given also the motive force to go because Christ taught you. That's what happened. Even under preaching, pray that the Lord and not your minister or any minister would be your teacher. No matter how humble the minister who comes up here is, pray, Lord, you teach me and I will be taught. That's how you will keep the truth of the word forever. You know, you think about this. How often has God's word left a temporary impression on you? You struggle what you remembered the other day, or maybe even worst of all, this is how you know the Lord didn't teach you. You have no desire to do what the word says, though you know it. But when the Lord teaches, the lesson is not lost. So ask him to teach you. Here's a promise to use in your prayers from Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it upon their hearts. So when the Lord teaches, he writes it on our hearts, in my mind, in my heart. And what do we plead for as we think on this verse, verse 33, right? What did Christ promise in Matthew 23, verse 8? For one is your master or teacher, even Christ. So can't you... Say, Christ, you promised you are my teacher. When I come and ask for grace to learn the word of God, be my teacher. Because when he teaches us, the lesson is profound and different. He excites and he motivates the mind. The mind does not let go of what Christ teaches. The mind meditates on it and it becomes food for the mind. And he causes us then to apply the word and live in view of it. What we do is we pray for unction to come from the uh, Holy Spirit when we come to the word of God and we open it, First John 2.20, but ye have an unction from the Holy One and ye know all things. That's what we want. That's what the minister wants when he preaches to you, an unction from God. This is what we want, God to teach us. 
You know, when you pray to the Lord, you just pray Elihu's words in Job. Lord, who teaches like you? No man has ever spake as thou hast spoken. So teach. If the Lord teach me, then the lesson will be learned by me. You know, if you have struggled with knowing the word and living in its statutes, perhaps this is what has been missing in your life. You know, if this is what you want Christ to teach you, let me just say, the Lord is very compassionate. When he saw sheep without a shepherd, what did he do? He had compassion on them, and then he taught them many things. Do you see how he wants to teach you, brethren? Why don't you ask him to teach you when you come to the word of God? And brethren, as we consider our theme of devotion to Christ, is it not fitting to pray such things in view of of devoting ourselves to the Lord because our mind must serve Christ only. It needs to get rid of sinful thoughts. It needs to get rid of uh, unbiblical patterns and philosophies and, and, um, uh, and ethics that have been flooding us from the time we were born. So, in faith, ask, such things of the Lord. Lord Jesus, send thy spirit to teach me so I can devote my mind to thee and stay my thoughts upon thee that I would no longer be conformed to this world but be renewed by my mind, being renewed by the word, that thy servant may be devoted to thy fear. Devotion begins in the mind and so this is a prayer the Lord delights to answer. Well, if Christ teaches your mind, his lesson will penetrate the heart which is our next heading. You know, Today, the theme, even in the church, is so unbiblical, right? Just follow your heart. Follow your heart. You find it all the way. It's the disnification of the church. It's this kind of idea that you just follow what the Bible says is deceitful and desperately wicked, unless it's touched by the Lord's grace. That's a dangerous thing, unless the heart follows the mind instructed by the word. Now, let us not make the opposite error that many do and despise the heart. We don't disavow the heart. We don't disavow its affections. We don't coldly say the heart is of no matter and only the mind matters. God, as you have heard in Psalm 119, wants heart religion. He wants your affections, brethren, but your affections informed by the word of God. He wants your affections, and really, when You know, we thought about this, we prayed about this, right? When God is infinite and eternal and so so vast, immense is the theological term, right? And and when he is so glorious in his love and his grace and his mercy, in his justice, in his dealings, in his wisdom, right? When our mind comprehends those things and we think of the infinite love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, the God-man, How can our heart not be moved? How can our heart not be moved by biblical truth? Because these things are glorious and are made to reach into the heart. The psalmist recognizes these things in verse 34. He bridges the mind and the heart. Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. See, the understanding of the mind the psalmist seeks one that will affect his heart as well, so that his obedience to the Lord is not merely intellectual, but also in his affections. Now, if Christ will teach you, your heart will be affected. 
You know, when you adore our teacher, when you adore him, his lessons will reach your heart. Service and fealty and love, not half-hearted, not resentful. Oh, have you obeyed the Lord resentfully? That's not what the Lord wants at all. He wants your whole heart. He wants to say, yes, I desire thy law. How I long for it, how I love it. It is my meditation all my day. That is what you and I must desire, not a piece of our heart kept from the Lord. Is there a part of your heart kept from the Lord? Is there a part where you say, okay, Lord, you can have 99% even of my heart, but this 1%, that does not belong to you, that belongs to me. I will not have God's ways touch that part of my heart. Well, that's idolatry, brethren. You must have a whole heart consecrated to the Lord. You know, to be wholly consecrated to God in that manner, is there any desire or yearning for that in you? To say, I will not reserve a single part. Do you even want that? To say, not a single portion of my heart, not a single affection will I reserve for anyone but thee. And what lawful affections there are for others are in light of Christ and his word. But my, my desires, the things of this world and everything else, no, take anything, Lord, that my heart has a hold of that is unlawful or is worldly, take it away from my heart. Do you have a desire to even pray that? Oh, to be consecrated to the Lord and devoted to him in that way. What will glory be like after all? But a, a, a time coming when your heart will be totally and utterly devoted to the Lord with no sin, no self standing in the way of you and God. So if you really do find heaven desirous, why don't you pray, thy will be done in my heart as in heaven? Not a part of me reserved for the Lord. Not a single resentful movement in my heart against God's will. When we think of our Lord Jesus saying we are to die to self, he says that so that you can commit all of yourself, including your heart, to him. It's a glorious thing to die to self, really. Because it's not a negative. It's not a loss. You might think of it this way, but it is gain. Even that's how the apostle speaks, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Losing all these things that have ensnared our heart and tangled it up in so much weed and, and rocks. But we are to plow the fallow ground of our heart to give it unto the Lord. He must increase and I must decrease so that my heart can be entirely his. Now, there must never be, and I mentioned this before, a disconnect between your mind and your heart. Something is very off if you find that you are taken by the truth of the word mentally, but your heart is not moved by it and has no desire to embrace it. The problem many have is that they have the law somewhere in their mind, but does the heart desire what the mind says is true? No. Then there's resentment. Then there's stubbornness. There's the stiff neck, right? No eagerness to embrace it. But one of the best ways to help you fight against sin and to be eager for obedience is to pray for your heart affections.
to be turned to the statutes of the Lord. Pray things like this. How I love thy law, O God. Why? Why should you love his law? Have you ever even thought on it? Because it helps me walk so close to thee. It helps me it helps me even enjoy the love of complacency that we talked about before. You will abide in my love, the Lord said, when you keep his commandments. Right? Uh, the law itself is summed up as love to the lawgiver and love to our neighbor. You know, God is love and so is his law. You know, these affections are an important battleground in our devotion to God. You recently heard that concupiscence is sin. That the desire for sin is sin. What is that but the matter of the heart? Isn't it? Sinful affections are to be mortified. When you desire what the Lord hates, right? Even though your mind agrees that it's wrong, but your heart is pulled away, ask for the Lord. This happens. We'll talk about the Apostle Paul. It happened to him. You need to ask the Lord to mortify it. Take it to him in confession and repentance. You need not just your mind, but your heart engaged with the word of God. Be deeply moved by what is right. Ask the Lord for that. Give me a heart that desires your will. You know, one of the very best ways to warm your heart to what is right is to never divorce the law from the lawgiver. How often do you do that? You sort of see, oh, here are 10 commandments, perhaps. But you ever remembered, right? What is, you can just turn to Exodus 20, right? What is the whole preface to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He says, I have saved you. I am your God in covenant with you. So keep these commandments. Right? You divorce the lawgiver from the law and your heart will not be moved. But when you think on what the Lord wanted in those Ten Commandments then, do you not remember my grace? Do you not remember my mercy? How I took you a people so unlovely, so small, and I saved you when no one else would save you. Does he not desire you to keep these commandments when he says, thou shalt have no other gods before me? You say, my heart screams, why would I want any other God but thee? When I look on the cross, and I say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would I desire anything but what pleases the Lord? That's what we're to do. Think of the love of the Redeemer, the lawgiver come to save you. Think of the, our brother preached in this way this morning, didn't he? You think of the spikes that were driven into him to save you from the curse of his own law. How he took on himself, right, the penalty that you deserve, sinner, if you are a Christian. How he cleansed you with his own blood. But do you also remember that part of his humiliation was to be made under the very law that he created to save you? Now how can your heart not be warmed to follow the law that the lawgiver himself had put himself under? Christian, do you ever think that the lawgiver died for you while you were yet a sinner? Have you never heard him then say in his word, if you love me, keep my commandments? He wants your heart. Does he not say in the Proverbs, my son, my daughter, give me thine heart. Why are your affections not consecrated to me? 
He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. John 14, 21. He wants your heart in the obedience and in the keeping of his law. You cannot be devoted to him without the heart as a response to your salvation. In verse 36, incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. So the psalmist is saying what? Send my heart towards thy law, but not to covetousness. Now, children, what commandment is that? That's the 10th commandment, isn't it? Why does he use the 10th commandment? Actually, this is helpful for you as you interpret the scriptures generally. Why does he use the 10th commandment? Well, you remember our sermon on concupiscence, that the 10th commandment is the one that shows us plainly that the law reaches the inward man because it deals with our affections, our coveting. It's not something you see outwardly necessarily. And so he says, incline my heart away from covetousness, which is a heart problem, towards the law of God. And the word reminds us as well that covetousness is what? Idolatry. Colossians 3.5. You know, covetousness sums up the self-centered pride of man uh, whose heart is reserved away from God. Take the fall, for instance, right? Eve coveted the forbidden fruit that belonged to God only. Idolatry. The first and tenth command. Sometimes people wonder why the apostle calls covetousness idolatry when idolatry is in the first commandment. Well, the first and tenth commandments are bookends. Right? The entire matter of the law within them. Idolatry through and through bookends the whole law. Well, when your heart is inclined towards the law, you will not just think it's a good idea, but you will do it because you will delight in it. Um, Verse 35, make me to go in the path of thy commandments for therein do I delight. You know, this is a key principle that is often missing in our meditation on the law. He wants us not just to even like the law, not just to think it's a good idea and it's, it's, it's great. He wants us to delight in it. Right? We are to think of it as our joy in a way. Right? Uh, let me use the Sabbath day as a witness to this truth. Um, there are many here who might keep it outwardly, but is your heart in it? What does Isaiah 58, 13 remind us? That many of us do not call it a delight. You see, God wants us to not just say, well, I will keep the law, but I will actually delight in his law. And I will find the things that he finds, right? Isn't this the heart of one who loves God? That the things he says are good and proper, I better say I delight in these things. Because these are obviously things the Lord himself delights in. And so my heart ought to delight in them as well. He wants you to delight in the ways of the Lord. And in this way, everything wrong with our use of the law is fixed if we would have this view, right? Neither the antinomian nor the legalist delights in the law of God, right? Because even the legalist will add to the law of God and not understand its proper use. And so he doesn't truly delight in it. And the antinomian finds absolutely no delight in the law of God because he wants to be rid of it. But the Christian who is born again delights in the law of God. What did Paul say? For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Romans 7, 22. You see, this is not 
you know, some weird person in the Old Testament saying he delights in something that is ungracious. No, this is the testimony of Scripture. This is the testimony of your own Savior. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Psalm 40. Right? That is the heart of Christ. And if you are called to have the heart of Christ, you are to delight in the things he delights in, and you are to hate the things he hates. Which tells you you are to hate sin with every fiber of your being, and you are to delight in the law of God with every fiber of your being. Now, you might feel a bit burdened by all this because you're just not there. Yet you have a good desire to be devoted to the Lord in these ways. You see, this is not the man or woman that I am, but I hope and pray you can say, I want to be. And at my best, I am these things, perhaps. The desire is good, and that's what we must kindle into a flame by God's Spirit blowing upon us and blowing upon those desires because he will not quench a smoking flax that has such desires in him, uh, but instead he will cause it, if you will go to him, to burn into a flame. That is why this psalm is given as a prayer. The psalmist doesn't say, I have necessarily arrived at these things. Now, the Lord Jesus can say it. But for those of us who sing it in him, we cannot say those things. We pray, make me the man, make me the woman after thine own heart, Christ. That's why this is all of grace. You know, Paul himself in this life said, I have not yet attained. But why is this psalm given in your devotional life? So that you may receive these things that you have desires for. That is why in verse 40, the psalmist prays, Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Now here's that asking for life to come. Life in my mind, in my heart, and in the members of my body as well. I have longed after thy precepts, but I cannot keep them. I cannot long for them the way I really ought to long for them unless thou wouldst quicken me in thy righteousness. Why does he call the righteousness of God as a witness? Because God is righteous to keep his promises, to give life to his servants. And he brings in verse 40 as a witness before God, behold, I have longed after thy precepts. What a thing it is to bring as a witness to God your own desire. To say to God, God, I desire these things. I do not yet possess them, so quicken me. I don't think we interact with the Lord this way very much, if we're being honest. Like this is a man in communion with Christ, right? who wrestles as Jacob wrestles in prayer. Right? This is what your prayer life and mine too is meant to be like. A speaking to the Lord of his promises, a showing him of your heart, its defects, its desires, its wants, and saying to the Lord, behold what my feeble desires are, would you quicken me? For thou art righteous to do it. Say, Lord, I have a desire, I have a longing, wouldst thou quicken me to desire and then do what thou hast commanded? He will give you vitality, will you go to him? If your devotional life is not like this, don't be surprised if your mind and your heart are carried away from Christ. The remedy is the grace of the Lord. 
So let's next see how our eyes, and I'm going to have to go quickly through these next two heads, our eyes are to be devoted to Christ. Verse 38, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou in me in thy way. Again, an askance for divine grace and life and vitality. And a really big problem, a really big problem in our devotion to the Lord is our eyes. Our eyes are covetous for sin, for lust, for the things of this world, the, you know, the things that we take pride in even, pride of life. Our eyes are covetous for what the Lord despises. I don't think I need to tell anybody here who has lived any amount of time as a Christian. Um, I don't think I need to even say that probably, but it must be said. You know, Job, in this oldest book of the Bible, understood the battle for the eyes, showing that man has not changed. He made a covenant with his eyes and asked, why then should I think upon a maid? Job 31.1. Because he knows that so often our disloyalty to God will come through our eyes. There's a battle for your eyes. Your eyes need to be devoted and consecrated to the Lord as Job did. Powers and principalities are after your eyes. The world knows to have the attention of your eyes is to actually have your soul. This is part of the devil's playbook. Remember, it goes back to the garden. This is not Madison Avenue and all the smut peddlers who came up with this. The devil did in the garden. You remember that. He he brings Eve to the fruit, shows it to her. He targets her eyes and she saw the fruit was what? Pleasant to the eyes comes through the eyes. There's a battle for the sanctity of your eyes, brethren, and your eyes must be consecrated to Christ. On the internet, in the supermarket checkout aisle of all places, at the community swimming pool, the beach, sadly at times, even in the churches of God today, there is a battle for the eyes. Many temptations to take your eyes to places that your eyes ought never linger things you will look upon with greed to covet, right, as well, whether it is houses or cars or devices or jewelry or people or whatever. Have you, have you ever monitored your eyes and even let, reflected back on a day and said, my eyes ought never have gone there. My eyes should never have lingered there. It's the lingering, right, that's usually, sometimes you can't help what comes before your eyes. It's the lingering, it's the drinking in. It's the tantalization of the heart. That's the problem. And that has to be fought, brethren. You know, so many people think that it's not a problem. That it's not a sin. It is an absolute sin to linger on things you ought not linger on. You must ask God to guard your eyes because sin finds purchase in your heart by, heart by way of the eyes. Pray that the Lord, what does the psalmist say? Turn my eyes from vanity. That's a prayer. There's so many prayers, petitions here. Notice the word vanity. It means useless or worthless. Idols are also called vain things. Um, you, you know, even Solomon was speaking about many things in this world. All is vanity. Right? Anything that leads to sin is ultimately vanity. Anyway, how do you combat that? And here's the thing, right? If you're not to look on vain things, you're to look on glorious and weighty things. That's where your eyes ought to go. 
That's clear from the Psalm's context, but also from the rest of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God wanted physical eyes set on objects that reminded his people of his commandments. In Numbers 15, 39, when speaking of the fringes of one's garment, the Lord says, And it shall be for ye, unto you for a fringe, that ye may look upon it and remember what? All the commandments of the Lord, and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye use to go a-whoring. He says, set your eyes on things that remind you of the commandments of God, because otherwise you will set your eyes on things that will cause you to go a-whoring. You know, our Lord Jesus wore such a border on his garments, as you well know. And that's what the woman with the issue of blood probably grasped a hold of. There's symbolism there, I think, for the gospel, where she grasped for the law in relation to the mediator. Right? That said, you don't wear fringes on your garments to look on today for the commandments. But the commandment to look on the fringe of our garments to remember the commandments when our eyes may go a-whoring, that was for a church under age. But with a greater indwelling of the Holy Spirit than the people had then, it's the eyes of our understanding. In Ephesians 1.18, that's to overshadow our physical eyes. Think of how you would be affected, right? If Christ has taught your mind and your heart his word, your affections on fire for the law and word of God, and you've been meditating it, as the psalm says, both day and night. When the filth comes, the eyes of your understanding will redirect your physical eyes away from the thing that is filthy. And that's why we need our heart and our mind conditioned so that the eyes of our understanding, that is our mind and our heart, would turn away our physical eyes from things that are vain. And when the filth does come to your eyes, think about this. You will interpret it correctly, won't you? What will you do? You will see lust and you will see uncleanness for what it is grotesque. Now, have you ever thought on how two different people can see the same thing very differently? Though their vision may be 2020 and have two very response, different responses to it. One man sees Potiphar's wife seduce him, and he wants to bed her. Another man, a godly man, sees the same woman seduce him and says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The eyes of Joseph's understanding was enlightened to see what sin is and its wickedness. And he takes the physical sense data from his eyes, and it revolts the heart. Another man, on the other hand, sees the same thing and wants to jump into the sin. You know, the difference is also not just that the eyes were on the commandments of God, but Joseph's eyes, like Moses's, were ever set on the invisible God and his beauty. Right? You know, meditations upon the Lord and on glory will help you. Isaiah thirty-three seventeen: Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. You know, when you consider the lawgiver, as I mentioned earlier, and his beauty, what is the filth all around us that our eyes are inundated with? Garbage. Refuse. Vanity. 
It turns our heart. We despise it. What is any forbidden fruit, as beautiful as it may be to the senses, when the eyes of our understanding are fixed upon Jesus Christ and his beauty? It doesn't matter how beautiful outwardly that fruit is even. We say, no, Christ says, I can't have it. I don't want it. I only want him. For he is altogether lovely. Remember Hebrews Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We don't see him with physical eyes, not until glory anyhow, but we understand him with the eyes of our understanding. And we see him by faith as he is in the word, and he guards our minds and heart. And we remember he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so in temptation, when your eyes are inundated, you reach for the hem of Christ's garment and take hold of his commandments as he is connected to them as the mediator of the new covenant. And in Christ, take the way of escape, promised in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Young people, let me just ask, where are your eyes? Maybe not young people. Sad to say, some of us with much Christian experience also have eyes that go where they ought not go. Where are your eyes? Where are they going? What do you see and what do you covet? Be very mindful in this society, children, you're going to be inundated with very unclean things. There is folly, there is uncleanness wherever you look. Even what seems to you like harmless entertainment, no, filled with things to excite the sin nature, be very careful where your eyes go. Make a covenant with your eyes and look not on things that are odious. Matthew 6, 23, Christ says, I can't linger here, but you may want to pick it up tonight. Your spiritual health is connected to your eyes. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single or healthy, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Let us ask God to turn our eyes from vanity and devote our eyes to him. You need grace. He will deliver your eyes if you ask and you will receive. Well, time being what it is, let's conclude with our final head, our feet. Verse 35, make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. So he has delighted in the law of God, and now he asks for divine grace to make him go in the path of righteousness. This is just an extension of what we saw in verse 32 last month. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Now, if there is a consistent testimony in Psalm 119 thus far, it is that we are to not just know the commandments, not just desire the commandments, but we are to run in the way of the commandments. We are to walk in them. There has to be a living of them out. How can you even say that you delight in the word of God if you're not going to do it? Right? Worse, how can you say that we delight in Christ without doing what he says? That is... The Lord Jesus Christ himself says, that is utterly absurd. Let us, uh, let me give you Ezekiel thirty-three, thirty-one. And they can't, can't come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. Let us not sing this psalm with outward love. But inwardly, our heart is going after covetousness, not giving the Lord the obedience he wants from us. Christ says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And what? But do not what I say. 
There must be obedience or else there is just hypocrisy. How do you know you are devoted to the Lord? Not just when mind and heart are engaged, but also our feet. And we are doing. Faith without works is what? Dead. If heart and mind and eyes are right, we will walk, however, imperfectly in the fear of the Lord devoted to him. In verse 39, the psalmist then confronts his fear of hypocrisy. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Now, we must not misunderstand what is the reproach that he fears. It's not so much reproach on himself, but I think you know where I'm going with this. It is reproach on God. When David sinned, Nathan said, Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. We don't want the name of God blasphemed because of us. Paul will say that in Romans 2.24. Our outward conduct must be without hypocrisy because a Christian is sensitive to the impact their conduct has on God's name. And if you really love the Lord, that's the one thing you cannot countenance is to see the name of God blasphemed because of us. You know, if we are unloving, if we are unforgiving, if we are bitter, if we use our mouth to devour and not edify, if we lie, if we covet, if we lust, if we steal, etc., etc., God's name is reproached when these things are public. Look at the Christian, always speaking of their Christ, but living worse than we do as pagans. So you pray, God, take this feared reproach away, right? Our heart ought to ache. Does your heart ache that God's name would suffer reproach because of your conduct? It ought to. So pray. This is a powerful prayer. Take away my feared reproach that I would cause reproach to come upon the name of God. There are powerful prayers in this psalm, seldom prayed but must be prayed. Let's end with the verse we began in our introduction to set our theme. Establish, verse 38, establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. We have seen the psalmist devote his mind, his heart, his eyes, and his feet to Christ. So what does he ask for in this verse? For God to establish the word to him. That's a petition to establish the promises of God to the psalmist. For David... He would have thought on the promises of the Davidic covenant, his son to rule and reign as the king of kings, even our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, David's petition was answered. But for us too, the Lord has given us many exceeding great and precious promises. He says he will never leave us nor forsake us. He says he will guide us through the valley of the shadow of death to lead us to green pastures, that our children will not be begging bread. He says he will prepare a place and receive us there and so on and so forth. All those promises are yea and amen in Christ. They are sure. But the point is this, how strongly you can plead these promises when you can say, yes, I am imperfect like David, the psalmist, but I am devoted to thee, O God. You know, I think for many of you who might find this psalm very challenging, I think the reason you find it challenging is because you are devoted to the Lord and you just stumble here and there and you need more grace to be what you ought to be in this psalm. And so the Lord says, why don't you pray to me in these ways? And will you not see if I will 
Turn your heart. I will turn your mind. I will turn your affections and your walk. If you're backslidden and you have found yourself walking away from the devotion you ought to have to the Lord, perhaps your heart is filled with grief and wounded tonight when you are seeing that you are turning away from the Lord for some sin that is vanity. For some sin that is vanity. What you must do is say, Lord, incline my heart unto thy commandments. Bring my heart back to Christ. Let me behold the King in his beauty. And he will pull that sin from your heart. It is your Savior, after all, that you are dependent on. Paul, when he saw that he delighted in the law of God, but saw that he was a wretched man in view of what he did, what does he say? He says, thanks be to God, doesn't he? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He looks to the Redeemer and says, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul saw he had need of a Savior. And the Savior is the man of the psalm for sure, who did it perfectly. And we united to him, rest in him. But grace is no license for sin, as you're well aware. And we are to ask the Savior, who lived this life totally consecrated to the Lord, to cause our life to be a reflection of his. And you must devote yourself, body and soul, to him. Never forget to pray. Children, here is, I'll close on this, a simple prayer based on this this psalm. Christ, fill my mind. Christ, incline my heart. Christ, guard my eyes. Christ, guide my feet. Christ, consecrate all of me to thee. A very simple prayer that sums up this psalm. Let us receive his free love in the gospel but let us return it back to him in an undivided devotion of ourselves to him by way of the word of God. Is he not worthy of it, Christian? When he says, if you love me, keep my commandments, is he not worthy of that devotion? I pray you will say he is, and I pray you will consecrate yourself. Amen. Uh, May God grant our desire to live for Christ. Let us arise for prayer if able. O Christ, fill our minds. O Christ, incline our hearts. O Lord Jesus, guard our eyes. O blessed Savior, guide our feet. And would thou consecrate all of ourselves to thee, that our lives would now be a living sacrifice, lived in view of the great sacrifice on Calvary. Even as we say, God forbid that we should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Help us to know that we are crucified with Christ and that the life we live is lived in view of it. Cause us to be devoted to the Lord. And if any here don't know the Savior at all, but have heard the word of God prick him or her, may they turn to the Lord for forgiveness and may they then follow after him. The Lord Jesus, we trust, is saying to many here tonight, come after me. And if any would come after me, would they take up their cross? Would they, well, first deny themselves, take up their cross and follow after me? May we be so devoted to the Lord that we would do these things and we would find it our delight to do so. 
We commit our lives unto our faithful Savior. In his name, amen.